0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning we're going to be uh, looking at verses 2 to 5. But just for the sake of context, I'm going to read a little bit before, and then I'm also going to read all the way to verse 20 of chapter 2. So I'm going to start reading in verse 17 of chapter 1. Because that's where you have Habakkuk's second complaint, and then in chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk with his second answer. Um, And I'm going to read all the way to verse 20 of chapter 2, but this morning we're just going to look at verses 2 to 5. So verse 17, or sorry, verse 12 of chapter 1, that's where I'll begin. And this is Habakkuk speaking. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, that is the Chaldeans, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook, he drags them out with his net, he gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my posts and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all people's. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long, and and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision." The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as, with, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the book of Habakkuk that reminds us of just how small we are and how marvelous and glorious and powerful and majestic and sovereign you are, and also that you are a God who is just but also merciful. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at your word now, that you would give us understanding by the power of your spirit, that you would move upon our hearts, and that by your spirit you would produce produce faith within us cause us to experience the light of faith and that for some of us today today might be the beginning of what it means to walk by faith do this for the glory of your son in his name we pray amen Well, as we've seen over the last several weeks, God and Habakkuk are having a very intense discussion. Habakkuk doesn't like the situation that is presently before him in Israel. Sin and wickedness are thriving in the nation of Israel. And Habakkuk wonders why God has not acted to address the sin of Israel, So God responds to Habakkuk in verse 5 to 11 of chapter 1, and in his response, he tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to be his means of judgment against Israel for their sin. And of course, Habakkuk, hoping to find relief from God's answer, is in fact more distraught than before. He's disturbed by God's decision to use a more wicked nation to judge Israel. And so we see his second complaint to God in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1. Habakkuk isn't at peace with how God has chosen to address the sin of Israel. He's having a hard time reconciling the goodness of God with God's specific action at this very moment. And his main concern is in verse 13, where his objection is to the fact that God is allowing a more wicked people to swallow up a less wicked people. The wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And also, whether or not God is going to allow the Chaldeans to continue mercilessly killing nations forever, which is how he ends his complaint in verse 17. And so Habakkuk, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he takes his stand at the watch post and looks out with expectation to hear from God. He wants God, he wants God to once again answer his complaint, to explain to him how these things can be if you are good. And from verse 3 to 20, God answer, answers Habakkuk. He responds to his complaint. Now, as I said this morning, we're not going to look at all of God's response. We're simply going to look at the first part of God's response, which is verses 2 to 5. But here, verses 2 to 5, or really verses 2 to 4, is the center of the book. It's the center of the the book. In fact, what God specifically says in verse 4 is the most important statement in the book of Habakkuk. Because everything that God says he will do can be explained by verse 4. Everything that Habakkuk has complained to God about can be explained by verse 4. Also, verse 4 is one of the central themes in all of Scripture, beginning in Genesis and all the way through into the New Testament. And it's the statement, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's here in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 2 that I want to focus our attention this morning. This is the beginning of God's response to Habakkuk's second complaint, and the first thing we see is God commands Habakkuk to write his revelation down. He instructs Habakkuk to write his revelation down. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. God commands Habakkuk to write down the vision, the revelation that God is going to give him, and to make it plain on two tablets. What does that remind you of? Ten commandments. Now there's debate about what is specifically the vision or the revelation that God gave to Habakkuk, but most likely... The vision contains everything in the rest of the book pertaining to God's judgment against wickedness and the salvation of God for all who have faith. See, according to verse 2, why does God command Habakkuk to do this? Why does he command him to write down on two tablets what he's going to reveal to him? And the answer is, so he may run who reads it. He may run who reads it. Habakkuk, I want you to write it down so that there's a record. So that when someone reads it, he may run. What's God talking about? Well, I think the idea is this. Everyone who reads the vision, the revelation that God has given through Habakkuk, now has a responsibility to to herald the message of the vision to whomever they come into contact with. God intends for his message to be passed on. It begins with Habakkuk, but it doesn't end there. God instructs Habakkuk to write it down for the sake of others. This isn't only for Habakkuk, it's for the sake of others, and then those others are to pass on the message. And this is really no different for the Christian who has embraced the gospel today. The gospel message was handed down. That is, handed down from the apostles, and it's been heralded by others, and those who are recipients of the message are called to run with it, to bring it to others. You see, if you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are called to then herald that message In the capacity that God has given to you to run with the message. But there's also something really important for us to see here. God instructs Habakkuk to write down what God's going to reveal to him. And this is important. Right here, there's a claim being made that what Habakkuk writes has been given to him by God. That is, Habakkuk didn't create the vision, he received the vision. God revealed and spoke to Habakkuk the vision. You see, right here we see the scripture testifying to the divine origin of the scriptures. That's what these men wrote down, that what these men wrote down was from God. See, the scriptures claim all over the place That the words that we are reading are not the words of man, but the words of God. That is what we are looking at this morning. We are looking at divine revelation. I don't believe this book is simply human ideas and human wisdom and human philosophies. If that were the case, I would not be a preacher. I would find another job to do that's easier and get paid more. (laughs) See, I believe this book has come to us through the prophets and apostles. But the author is God. God has spoken. And the New Testament authors saw the Old Testament, like the book of Habakkuk, as divine revelation. This is what Paul says when he opens his letter in Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the good news of God. And then he says this about the good news, which he, that is God, promised before beforehand. Beforehand, that, what does that, what does he mean by that? Beforehand, as in before I'm writing this letter. God promised this gospel beforehand. How did he promise it? Through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's Paul's argument. Paul says the gospel that has been entrusted to him was promised by God beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that means that if that's true, there is a weightiness to this. You did not just come here this morning to hear a man lecture his own ideas. You came to hear God speak through a very broken human vessel. And I realize that this claim is possibly one of the most criticized claims today in modern culture. See, if you were living um, pre-enlightenment, that is uh, before the enlightenment happened, which I actually think a better way to call the enlightenment is the Dark Ages, but... If you were living pre-enlightenment, the majority of the debates revolving around the Bible was the teachings of the Bible. In other words, people fundamentally were debating what the Bible taught, what was considered orthodoxy and what was considered heresy. But no matter where you stood on those debates, no one was really debating whether or not God had spoken, whether or not God had revealed himself through the scriptures. But post-enlightenment and into the 18th century, the fundamental debate came down to, has God spoken at all? And we see that still playing out today in our society. To the point where there are many self-identifying Christians who claim to follow Jesus but don't believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, despite the fact it testifies about Jesus. They don't believe that the scriptures are actually God's revealed word. And to be honest with you, I just don't think it's possible to truly be a follower of Jesus and not believe the scriptures are of God, of which Jesus says, All the scriptures testify to me. Let me put it to you like this. If I said I was a Muslim, but that I don't believe Muhammad is a prophet from God, and I doubt that the Quran is from God. Now, you might agree with those latter two statements. But if I don't believe those two claims while claiming to be a Muslim, you would probably think I'm not a Muslim, or at least I'm not a really good one. Do you see what I mean? We're told here that God has revealed to Habakkuk truth. And Habakkuk has written down that truth from God. And each of us have to decide whether that claim is true or not true. And how we ought to then respond to it. And here's what I know God looks for. In Isaiah 66 two, he says this, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. So, the first thing we see is that God, in his response to Habakkuk, has instructed him to write down the vision that God has given to him and to then have that message heralded because it's God's message. It's the most important message that human beings can hear because it comes from God. Secondly, God instructs Habakkuk to patiently wait for the revelation or the vision to be fulfilled. Look at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So God exhorts Habakkuk that if this vision that I've given you uh, seems to come slowly, wait for it. Wait for it. Now, of course, uh, the immediate fulfillment of the vision is the destruction of Babylon. Because the vision that God gives to Habakkuk in all that follows in chapter 2 is God telling Habakkuk that though the Chaldeans will be used as his instrument of judgment, so afterwards they too will be judged for their wickedness. Nobody gets away with their crimes. And so what God's saying is this. If the judgment of Babylon seems slow to you, wait for it. It will come. You see, before Babylon is judged for its sin, invasion, devastation, deportation, and slavery is going to come to Israel at the hands of the Babylonians. And in such a horrendous situation, Habakkuk and Israel would need to stand upon and hold on to the vision that God told them would come. They would need to learn to patiently wait for God's revelation to be fulfilled. They would have to learn to trust that God would deliver on his promise, which is why verse 4 is so important. As we'll see. But God tells Habakkuk to wait because he promises that the vision that's been given to him will be fulfilled. In fact, the vision, this revelation, will not come one day too late. Look at the language that God uses in verse 3 it waits its appointed time. This vision has an appointed time of fulfillment and it won't be a minute late. Nothing will thwart the fulfillment of the vision and the exact timing of the vision. It hastens to the end. That word hastens literally refers to breathing. It could be translated pants for the end. The vision, as one commentator says, has its own yearning to be fulfilled. Not only that, he says, it will not lie. This vision will not lie because the vision comes from God for whom it's impossible to lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You see, God's reputation and honor are bound up in him keeping and fulfilling his promises. Not only that, God adds at the end of verse 3, it will surely come, it will not delay. Habakkuk, it won't be late. But here's what's required of you. Wait for it. Wait for it. You know, sometimes waiting is the hardest thing for us to do as humans. And as Christians. But waiting is often God's wise way of building faith and virtue in us. Sometimes the holiest, the godliest thing a Christian can do is learn to wait, which I have no doubt is harder today than ever before. Everything about how we operate today as a society is intended to limit waiting as much as possible. Israel waited 400 years for God to deliver them from slavery, then 70 years in the Babylonian captivity. We've experienced two years of COVID and government interference, and we couldn't take it. We don't like to wait. And so when God tells us to wait, it makes us very Uncomfortable. But waiting can be God's chisel in sculpting us into the very image of Christ so long as we embrace it. You see, the immediate context makes clear that what God is telling Habakkuk to wait for is, of course, the end of Babylon's wickedness. In other words, God's telling Habakkuk to wait patiently for the destruction of the Babylonians so they can no longer inflict so much suffering, especially on Israel. But as we've seen before with prophecy in the scriptures, prophecy usually has a double meaning. That is, there's usually an immediate fulfillment, but it also points to a greater fulfillment. Prophecy can function like a mountain range. You see the first mountains, but, but there's other mountains behind the first mountains, and prophecy can operate like that. That is, there, there's, there's immediate fulfillment. The, the, the mountains you see at first, but then there's greater fulfillment of that same prophecy with the mountain range behind. You see, though God, in the immediate context, is speaking about his judgment against Babylon. There's also an allusion to the end of all things. The day in which Jesus Christ will return at the end of time and judge the nations in righteousness and establish goodness, peace, and true justice, and his people will be forever freed from the clutches of evil. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-26, which is about the resurrection of the death, alludes to this. Paul says this, For as by a man came death, that is, As by Adam came death, by a man, that is Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first first fruits of the resurrection. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then we read this, then comes the end. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's the hope of the Christian. That one day Christ is going to come And hand the kingdom to his father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, after putting all of his enemies and his people's enemies under his feet. You see, we could say that to be the people of God is to be a waiting people. Habakkuk and Israel were called to wait for God's deliverance from Babylonian oppression. Israel was called to wait 400 years for deliverance from Egypt. They were not only called to wait for that, but they were also called to wait for their Messiah, even though they rejected their Messiah. And as New Covenant believers, we've been called to wait for Christ's return. We're called to wait until the vision hastens to the end, for it will come. And one day we will never have to wait again. Wait for it, Habakkuk. Wait for it, O Christian. Thirdly, God instructs Habakkuk that the righteous by faith shall live. We now come to the key in the whole book. And really, this is one of the central themes in all the scriptures, which I already alluded to. It's here where God answers Habakkuk's complaint by laying before him two classes of people. Two classes of people. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God tells Habakkuk to behold. Behold. Because what he is about to hear is foundational truth that can only be obtained by God revealing it. Human reason alone cannot come to such a conclusion. It must be revealed by God. Now, the first clause in verse 4 is being contrasted with the second clause in verse 4. So the man whose soul is puffed up and is not upright within him is being contrasted to the righteous man who by faith lives. So we need to ask, What does being puffed up mean? And what does it mean that his soul is not upright with him? And then what does it mean to live by faith? So the idea is this. People who don't have a living relationship with God, that is, living by faith with God, are puffed up. More accurately, they are bloated. Bloated. There's an arrogance and a pride to them. A self-sufficiency a proudness that makes them unwilling to be dependent upon God. Not only that, their souls are not upright within them. That is, in their pride and arrogance, they can find no rest for their souls. There is no tranquility for them, but only turmoil within. Peace cannot be found within them. In other words, Here's what I think God is communicating to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, though the wicked may live in luxury, as you alluded to in verse 16 of chapter 1, and though their food be rich, and though they rejoice and are glad in their wickedness, there is no peace for their souls. Their arrogance and pride make them forever restless. Not to mention, they fear that one day they will give an account for their sin, which is precisely what God promises in the following verses. You see, you see this unpacked a little bit further in verse 5. You have the puffed up man described further in verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Sheol is, in the Old Testament, the place of the dead. Think about how wide Sheol is when you think about how many human beings have died. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, in the immediate context, the man who's puffed up is the king of Babylon. It's the nation of Babylon. But this is a foundational truth to describe all of humanity apart from God. There is no peace for the arrogant and wicked. Now, not only does God tell Habakkuk truly what's going on with the wicked, he also tells him truly what's going on with the righteous. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, within the context, this is God's answer to Habakkuk's dilemma that he expresses in verse 13. When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You know what God's saying? No, Habakkuk. That might appear so, but it's not true. The righteous are not swallowed up by the wicked. The righteous, by faith, live. See, there are a few things that we need to see here. The first is this. In the eyes of God, the righteous are those who believe. Those who live by faith. That's precisely what's being articulated here. The righteous, according to God, are those who believe, trust, have faith in God and what he has said. See, the idea of righteousness in the Old Testament always has with it the idea of being right with God. Which means you might think, oh, I'm going to live a righteous life and I don't need God. But according to God, if you think you're living a righteous life, you're not. Because righteousness, according to God, is tied up with being right with God. Which means... Those who are right with God righteous are those who live by faith in God and what he has said. See, in the immediate context, God has granted a vision to Habakkuk of the judgment he will bring to the Chaldeans in the future and ultimately deliver Israel from Babylonian oppression. But that event at that very moment hadn't happened yet. And so God is calling Habakkuk to believe that God will deliver on his promises. And the one who believes that God will deliver on his promises is the one who is right with God, righteous. See, in this context, faith is believing God's words before God's words are fulfilled. Faith is, as Prior states, an undisturbed confidence in the promises of grace. Faith begins with, I believe God has spoken. It grows to, I believe what God has spoken is true. And I have chosen to live in light of the belief. For the righteous lives by faith. See, this is one of One of the central teachings of the Christian faith. In fact, we see this with the father of our faith, Abraham. In Genesis 15 1 6, God comes to Abraham and speaks to him, and this is what we read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I want you to notice that. The word of the Lord came to Abram Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then we read this. And he, that is Abraham, believed the Lord. And God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. So here's the situation. Abraham is over 90 years old. He's almost 100. His wife is barren. But God tells him that he will give him an heir. It's humanly impossible for this to happen. But the word of the Lord came to Abraham and tells him that not only will he have an heir, but his offspring will number the stars. Now at that very moment, none of that had happened. Abraham still had no heir. Sarah still was not pregnant. So when we're told that Abraham believed God, it means he put his trust in God's word, believing that God would deliver on what he promised. And because he believed God, God counted it to him As righteousness. See, the idea is this. He was made right with God by believing. Was he made right with God by obeying God? No. By believing God. Now we could say belief is a form of obedience, but the point is this. It wasn't his works that made him right with God. It was his faith that made him right with God. Now this statement by Habakkuk, and also the one in Genesis, is picked up in the New Testament to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ and how one is justified or made right with God, made righteous. So Romans 1, 16-17, I'm just going to use one example, There's it's all over the New Testament, but Romans 1, 16-17, the Apostle Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that that Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, came into this world, clothed himself in humanity, and he died on the cross for the sins of the world. And that those who repent and believe upon him receive his righteousness because he took our sin. We call this the great exchange. Okay? That's the gospel. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this good news. For it is the power of God for salvation. So, this gospel is God's power for salvation. That is for people to be saved from their sins and made right with God. And then look at what he says To everyone who obeys, no, he doesn't say that. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. See, here's the, here's the idea. Okay? There are two ways to think about life. One is, you can strive to create your own righteousness before God and you shall fail. Or, you can receive the righteousness of God. God gives you a righteousness. He counts to you a righteousness that is not your own. That's why theologians call this an alien righteousness that is given to us from Jesus Christ. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That is from beginning with faith and ending in faith. And then he says this, as it is written, and he quotes Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. In other words, according to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the scriptures, the righteous are those who have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation. Just as Abraham and Habakkuk were called to believe what God said he would do, those who are saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who believe that what God has said pertaining to Jesus Christ is true and they bank their life on it. In the eyes of God, the righteous are those who believe. Secondly, I want you to notice That God does not contrast those who have faith and those who don't have faith. He doesn't contrast that. God doesn't say to Habakkuk, those who have faith are righteous and those who don't have faith are not righteous. Though that is true in God's eyes. He doesn't contrast belief versus unbelief. What does he contrast? He contrasts Faith versus pride. He contrasts the one whose soul is puffed up with the one who lives by faith. Which means one's refusal to believe is rooted in pride. And one's willingness to believe is rooted in being humbled. Faith begins with a humbling of oneself before God. Habakkuk, will you humble yourself before me and believe my words, trust what I have said. True faith, as Calvin says, strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God, that we may seek salvation from him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us. You see, in the eyes of God, there are two kinds of people, two classes of people. There are those who, in their pride and arrogance, say they don't need God, nor His salvation revealed in Jesus. And then there are those who acknowledge that they have no hope apart from God and come before God, trusting that He alone can deliver through Jesus. As Calvin so eloquently says, For all the unbelieving try to fortify themselves and thus they strengthen themselves, thinking that anything in which they trust is sufficient for them. But what does the righteous do? He brings nothing before God except faith. And then he brings nothing of his own because faith borrows, as it were, through favor what is not in man's possession. Let me paint it to you like this the difference between the righteous who believe in God and the bloated man who trusts in himself. Let me me paint it to you like this. This is kind of a ridiculous illustration, but I think it captures the point. Imagine you have to cross the Pacific Ocean to reach your destination. It's a big ocean. You only have two options. You can either get on the ship that God has provided, Jesus, Trusting that the ship will get you to your destination, despite how powerful the waves may be, despite how fearful and weak you may be, because you believe the ship is strong enough to bear the waves. Or, you can, in your pride and arrogance, not believe that God has provided a worthy ship, and instead attempt to get across with your own swimming ability. That's the picture between a man who has humbled himself and has placed his faith in God and a man who in his pride thinks he can reach his destination without God. Which one are you? Which one are you? Now, I want to share some concluding thoughts in light of these verses. The first is this. Christian brother and sister, though it may seem slow, God will fulfill his promises to his children exactly when he intends to. Therefore, wait for the Lord. Wait for him. There is a reason that the faithful are called to persevere until the end. Secondly, though it may seem that the wicked and arrogant are living the good life, understand that they are not at peace. It's so easy to covet the wicked and all that they have. They live in luxury and enjoy the nicest foods, but their soul is not at rest because their soul is not at peace. With God. As Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Habakkuk felt that the wicked were getting away with their wickedness, but God wanted to make clear to Habakkuk that though it may appear to your naked eye, the wicked do not, in fact, get away with their wickedness. Which means, Christian, and to those of you who don't know Jesus, it's far better, it's far better, a thousand times better to have your soul at peace with God than it is to live in the luxuries and pleasures of this world. Thirdly, Christian, we do not simply have faith to begin our relationship with God but we must now walk by faith. The Christian life is one of growing in faith, trust, belief in what God has revealed. Which means, Christian, by the Spirit of God, you have a responsibility to deepen and strengthen the faith that God has given to you. See, I think there's a lot of Christians who believe that it's necessary to have faith in order to be justified before God, but many of those Christians forget that one's living is also to be governed by faith. We live by faith. We live our lives primarily by trusting in the promises that God has made to His people, not primarily by what we see. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. See, I think many of us make decisions based upon our seeing rather than our believing. God calls us to trust Him and His promises even when what we see around us causes us to question whether or not we can rely on His promises. Fourth and final thing, if you're here and you thought that Christianity is ultimately, ultimately about trying to live a good life and hoping that somehow God will accept you on the basis of your own goodness. You need to understand that's not what Christianity remotely teaches. In fact, there is nothing more that God despises than the man who thinks himself worthy of God's salvation. The man who thinks himself worthy of God's acceptance is the man who is puffed up and bloated. There is nothing for you to do except to trust that God has done everything that is necessary for you to be made right with him. And what he has done is given us his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And what you must do is simply humble yourself and believe upon Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust that what God has said concerning His Son is true, and then bank your life on it. I hope and pray that you would do that today. I want to end this morning by simply reading Psalm 37. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 37. Because I think Psalm 37 captures precisely what is conveyed here in Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Psalm 37 is a call for the people of God, that is those who live by faith, to trust God when it seems that the wicked are flourishing and going unpunished. Let me read this for us. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Fret not evildoers, rather trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust, again, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. When you and I fret about the wicked, we ourselves become evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, verse 9. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek, the humble shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own hearts, and their bows shall be broken." Better is the little (laughs) that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. There are wicked men fighting over land today. Know this. The only one who will inherit the land forever are the righteous of God. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. Verse 30. And his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord. There it is again. Wait. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed, for the future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because why? Because they're amazing? No. Because they take refuge in Him. They take refuge in Him. Alan Ross summarizes the message of Psalm 37 as this. Those who live by faith and look for the coming of the Lord will not be anxious about this world's inequalities, but will rejoice in the Lord's blessings on the righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, for those who are here this morning who have no faith, Grant them the gift of faith that in believing they may see for the first time. And for those of us, Lord, who have already experienced your gift of faith, help us, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. And to keep our eyes on the coming of our Lord Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.